The letters of the Apostle Paul are filled with wise guidance about how to live as Christians. And those letters were written in a Roman Empire setting where guidance to live as Christians was in a culture largely hostile to Christianity. Living as a Christian in the first century Roman Empire was no easy thing. It would have been no easy experience. And think about the the burgeoning and growing group of believers, Christ followers, in the midst of other authorities, regional and broader than that, that were not Christians. Regional authorities wouldn't have become Christians yet, and ancient Near Eastern kings would have been diehard pagans. And so you have this group of growing Christ followers in the first century Roman Empire. And they're confessing that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And that this Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem and had been risen from the dead. And after rising from the dead, these Christ followers and these early leaders of Christianity are willing to face revilement. They know that in the Roman Empire, they should expect hostility. You could call them a prophetic minority. They were a minority of people in a majority culture that were by and large against the kinds of teachings that they would be promoting. In the book of Acts, you see this worked out in narratives, don't you? One story after another in the opening of the book where the social challenges are clear. The political tensions are clear. You have disciples like Peter and John preaching to the masses in Jerusalem. And it is not going well in terms of worldly approval. You have uh, authorities arresting them, threatening them, accusing them. And by the time you get to Acts 7, a man named Saul of Tarsus is standing in approval of the death of a Christian named Stephen, who had been put to death, executed by stoning from a mob. This writer of 1 Timothy is that Saul of Tarsus who had been on the other side of this matter for quite some time before he became a Christian. Paul had been a persecutor of the church, a diehard opponent of Christians and of Christ himself. When you read the book of Acts, here's something you notice. That the opposition to Christianity and the persecution in Jerusalem and beyond, it did not quench the power of the gospel. You see something quite paradoxical, in fact, that as the people of God were faithful to Christ and endured persecution, the Lord built his church. Consider in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, the words, those who scattered went about preaching the word. That's what they scattered and did. Yeah, there was difficulty and hostility. And so they were thinking strategically about where to go and for how long. But as they went, as they went, what did they do? Well, they preached the word. In the grace of the Lord, the persecution of Christians in the first century Roman Empire was followed nevertheless by evangelism, discipleship, and the salvation of the lost. Now, these lives of first century Christians had some circumstances that weren't always as hostile as certain areas and pockets in the empire. You have certain comments like Acts 9.31, which feels like a breath of fresh air. Acts 9.31 says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So you find that the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ 
were not just facing the threat of death from sunup to sundown every day, no matter where they went. It was nevertheless a hostile, intense environment in the Roman Empire. And yes, martyrdoms did increase as the first century passed from one emperor to another, and especially the wicked emperor Nero. Nero is the emperor during which Paul writes this letter. Ruling in the 60s and dying in 68 AD after the apostle Paul was martyred under his reign. Emperor Nero was a very vile ruler, persecuting Christians and even using their bodies as things to light the lawns of his parties. A a very grotesque treatment of Christians, not only in their suffering prior to death, but the appropriation of their bodies to serve as things to be lit aflame for his amusement. Nero is the one in power as Paul writes these words to Timothy. And Timothy is in some difficult situations, not just because of the hostile Roman Empire against Christianity. He is facing difficulty within the church in Ephesus. So when it rains, it pours, as they say, right? So you got Timothy dealing with difficulties in the Roman Empire. Not only that, you have within the church of Ephesus false teachers that have arisen and are confusing the message of the gospel with their poor teaching about the law and the way that they conduct themselves. Timothy is to defend sound doctrine because he is in a fight. Paul calls it a good fight, and he wants Timothy to wage the good warfare, which involves holding to sound doctrine and defending it, proclaiming the truth about Christ and not tolerating what corrupts the gospel itself. Timothy's going to need to keep trusting Jesus, but also hold to a good conscience. We thought about those elements last week at the end of chapter 1. And the danger, the stakes, are high enough to where if Timothy doesn't pay attention to these things, he and others will go the way of Hymenaeus and Alexander. Two examples within the Ephesian church who likely occupied positions of leadership and had what Paul called shipwrecked their faith. They had shipwrecked their faith. They had abandoned a good conscience. And they were no longer looking to the truth of the gospel, but in their corrupted teachings and in their false doctrine, they were led astray and led others astray. They shipwrecked their faith. That is the disastrous result. And that means the church had to address that. Paul says they had been, Hymenaeus and Alexander that is, turned over to Satan. 1 Timothy 1 verse 20. To be handed over to Satan is the language he uses in 1 Corinthians 5 and here in 1 Timothy 1.20. It's graphic language, it's disturbing language, but being handed over to Satan is another way of saying they have been excommunicated from the fellowship of the church. They've been excommunicated from the fellowship of the church so that it would be clear that their confession and their way of life is out of step with the gospel and deviating from sound doctrine and in fact bringing confusion on it. So the church needs to act. The Ephesian church needed to make a stand. And in taking such a stand, they would be able to make clear what the truth of the gospel was and who was teaching contrary to it. Now we start today, chapter 2, and at the end of chapter 3, I think there's a statement that really is summarizing what he's going to be getting into in chapter 2, in chapter 3, and even some of the later sections as well of the letter. What's animating Paul seems to be this this, uh, following concern. 1 Timothy 3, 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, 
you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Oh, it's hard to overstate the importance of what we've just heard. Verses 14 and 15. That Paul's saying, you know, I'm telling you why I'm writing these things, Timothy. Why am I telling you what I am in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and even what goes beyond chapter 3, 14 and 15? Why am I writing these things? Because I might be delayed. And I want you to already put into practice and, and mentally reflecting on together as a body of Christ how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. Household of God. And you think about your individual home and you might say, well, in our individual home, this is how we do things. Well, think of the church as a household of God. And Paul says, here's how we ought to do things. This is, he's saying this is not just an individual's house. This is the household of the living God. And there shall be conduct that is in keeping with sound doctrine in the gospel. What he's calling the people to do in chapters 2 and 3, especially, is to focus on this kind of behavior and conduct and order in the people of God. And therefore, we come to chapter 2, verses 1 and following as an example of what he has in mind. What are the things that the people of God should be occupied with? What are the things that should characterize their thoughts and their words and their gatherings? And he says, first of all then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The first thing we want to notice, and it even gets into the first part of verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, it's this call to pray for all people. This call to pray for all people. The call is clear in verse 1, and then a group of the all are given in verse 2. So you've got this group of all... And made for all people are to be prayers, supplications, intercessions. And then it's like he's saying, for instance, what what I have in mind, especially in this case, in verse 2, is kings. All who are in high positions. They fall within the larger category, don't they, of the all people. Verses 1, and in the first part of verse 2, there's this call to pray for everyone. And it's even following the logic of his previous words. He says, first of all, then, which is a word that can mean therefore. First of all, therefore, he's building on something. Well, he's told Timothy in verse 18 of chapter 1, this charge I've given to you, Timothy, my child, that by these prophecies previously made about you, by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith, a good conscience. And then he says in chapter 2, First of all, therefore, I urge you to pray. He wants the people in Ephesus, and certainly facilitated and encouraged by Timothy, to be a church committed to prayer. In fact, the importance of it is noteworthy. It's the word, first of all. He didn't say, last of all. He said, first of all. And that is a priority word. It is an urgency and an importance and a priority with these terms. First of all, then I urge. We should get the impression here that Paul is very concerned that the churches of Jesus Christ be prayerful churches. 
They be people who are committed to the practice of prayer, the gatherings for prayer, the intercessions and thanksgivings. He's thinking about the importance of prayer. And no one in Ephesus should say, but Timothy, don't you realize how many problems we've got going on? Don't you know how difficult it is to be a Christian in the Roman Empire? Don't you realize how tense things can be? And this person's got this going on, and this region has this conflict. No one should say we have so many things going on that we don't have time to pray. Paul says, first of all, this is a lifeline within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because the people of God in union with the Lord Jesus are a people who call upon him. They call upon him. That's right. Amen. First of all, then I urge this word urge. Is, is such a word of pressure and encouragement at the same time. He's not giving them any negative information. This is encouraging for them to think about and put into practice. But there is a gentle pastoral pressure that you might feel with that word. I urge you to do this. So Paul is not making what he would consider to be light recommendations. You know, Timothy, let me put out kind of a buffet of options for you to consider in Ephesus with what you've got going on. He says, let me tell you what I urge you to do. What ought to be first of all done, and that is that you pray. And being a people of prayer here is is not just something he uses with the word prayer. He's describing the prayer with several terms, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. I don't think these four terms are hard and fast, completely different from one another. There is some overlap. The word supplication is to call upon the Lord in prayer for help. And intercession is the idea of calling upon the Lord for help on the behalf of someone else. And so you are praying for them. And that, that second word, prayers, is quite general. It encompasses supplications and intercessions and thanksgivings. And thanksgiving is also a kind of prayer. Thanksgivings is offering praise and thanks to God for something. And you can offer thanks to God for something within your own life or on behalf of. You can intercede with thanksgiving on behalf of another. So supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings, these, these, this fourfold string of words isn't to be so separated that they must have their own unique definition with no overlap. They they rather all run together quite intentionally. And so that when he says the kinds of people we're to be, a prayerful people, he says we're to be a people who also pray all kinds of prayers. So we're to pray all kinds of prayers as a praying people. Should there be needs that are brought to our attention, then we should pray. Praises and thanksgivings and answers to prayer, then we should rejoice and give thanks. Things in our own lives that we should pray for, do we hear of something in another's life? Then we should intercede and we should present supplications to God for his help and strength. Being a people of prayer means being a people who pray all kinds of prayers. And that's what these four terms seem to be doing. That we would have a prayer life before God and with one another where we are mindful of what to ask of the Lord. Mindful of what to give thanks to God for. Mindful about what others need in terms of their own strength and help and answers for prayer. Being a people of prayer means being conscious of the many kinds of prayers we pray. A a clear example of this in the Old Testament is the book of Psalms. How many different kinds of psalms are there? 
Psalms where they are recounting the wonders and thanks with God, thanks to God for his deliverances. There are laments and suffering psalms where they're calling out to God in their weakness and in their distress. There are all kinds of psalms, once again giving us the example that we are to pray all kinds of prayers. It's helpful to ask that practical question then about your own Christian life, especially at the beginning of a new year, where people may have all sorts of new resolutions for spiritual growth and disciplines. Incorporated into this, we should think about our times of prayer. What kinds of prayers do we pray? And when we pray together, and when we pray individually, is it only for our own needs, or is it for the needs beyond our lives as well? Are we enough aware of what the needs are in the lives of others, that when we pray, we are willing to intercede? We offer supplications on their behalf, and we're aware of what the Lord has done for us to give thanksgivings to God. He doesn't want groups excluded from prayer. He says, first of all, I urge that these things be made for all people. And when he gives the example in verse 2 for kings and all who are in high positions, he means, I think, at the end of verse 1, by all people, all kinds and groups of people. Because verse 2 is connected to the logic of verse 1. And verse 2 gives us examples on a spectrum of groups socially and politically. He does not believe there are groups and segments of people that ought to be excluded from our prayers. And he prays, he says here, and, ought, and we ought to pray as well, for all people. And not last of all, but first of all. There, there's a universal thrust to this that you could feel in verse 1. All people, all kinds of groups, the lost and the saved. Those who are citizens and those who have positions of influence and authority. Those who are in the United States and those who are throughout the world. Those who are engaged in ministry locally and those who are missionaries far and wide. Think about all the different breakdowns and groups that we could come up with to say, okay, well, which of these should we not pray for? There's not an answer to that question, except an answer to there is no such group excluded from our prayers. That we ought to pray for the Lord's will and help and wisdom and saving grace for all. And what he has in mind here in verse 2 is the group for kings and for all who are in high positions. And when he says this, it's followed by a reason. The reason for prayer at the end of verse 2 is that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He must have in mind... Praying in such a way toward these groups that should the Lord answer the prayers for these, let's say, the kings and those in high positions, he gives the example of in verse 2. If the Lord answers such prayers, the outcome would be believers leading a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. All right, so let's reflect on this for a moment. Kings. This word kings and those who are in high positions, it's a flexible word that it, that it could encompass multiple levels of authority in the Roman Empire. First of all, it would include the emperor, which would be important for us to remember. Emperor Nero is the one who would be the head of the Roman Empire when Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. And, but not just that, there were various puppet kings and regional authorities throughout the Roman Empire that were to do the will of the emperor. 
And you have others in positions outside the Roman Empire. All kings, high positions. These are positions of influence. And here's something we know. Those in positions of influence can make the lives of believers more difficult. And those who are in positions of influence could make the lives of the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ less difficult. There are places in the world where the authorities in power make life very difficult to be a faithful Christian. One of the most highly persecuted areas in the world at the moment, and has been for quite some time, not just at the moment, but is places like Nigeria or Afghanistan. Places where the Lord Jesus Christ's saints are at work to spread the gospel. And even in Nigeria, over a hundred million confessing Christians. And yet a hotbed of persecution throughout the country. For kings and all who are in high positions, they should be objects, subjects of our prayers so that in praying for them, a particular result would be desirable. What's the desirable result? That believers would be able to live peaceably and have quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. One writer puts it this way. If you're a student of Bible history, you'll know That this prayer from Paul didn't come during a time of religious freedom, but increasing persecution of the church. Christians, he says, were mostly ostracized, marginalized, and targeted for execution. And yet, Paul told them to pray for the government to allow space for faithful Christian witness. One of the things, then, that ought to be on the minds of believers, praying for those uh, around us, are positions of influence and authority that would help to facilitate conditions for faithful Christian witness. We are not eager to seek suffering and persecution for the saints. Now we recognize, according to 1 Peter 4, that the hostility of the world and raging dragon against the gospel and and the people of the Lord should mean that persecution doesn't surprise us. We shouldn't look at the world's hostility to the churches of the Lord Jesus and say, we would have never seen this coming. No, instead, we should say, all right, given what we believe and given how the darkness, those of the darkness love the deeds of darkness and hate the light, it, it is understandable in a fallen world where there is conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. However, the Bible never tells us to pray for persecution. The Bible never tells us to seek suffering and martyrdom. It may happen in the Lord's plan and providence, but consider what the Bible does say to pray for. Not praying for persecution, but in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2, praying for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. They ask the opposite of a life that is rife with circumstances characterized by suffering and conflict and persecution. If persecution comes, let us pray for the grace of the Lord to empower us to walk that difficult road. But let us also pray that that day would not arise and that along the way the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would be fervently in prayer for conditions to facilitate faithful gospel witness. Here's the phrase you and I might be most familiar with. We would pray that the governing authorities protect religious liberty. That's a phrase we would be most familiar with that I think is coherent with language like this. Where the Roman Empire was a place of great pagan worship and all sorts of idolatrous practices, but easily the kind of conditions, unfortunately, that would target and marginalize believers in the Lord Jesus. 
Paul says, you know what we need governing authorities to do? Help us to live a peaceful and quiet life. Not persecute us, not target us, not not set us apart as the objects of their judicial wrath, but instead to let us live faithfully and peaceably before God. That means a, a peaceable circumstance and conditions socially and politically for them to flourish as the church of the Lord Jesus. Now we recognize that the Lord's grace in the power of the gospel is such that the persecution of believers around the world does not quench the strength and mercy of the Lord Jesus. We're very grateful for this. Because where there is difficulty to be a believer and share the gospel around the world, we would fear from a worldly perspective, well, if it's difficult to share the gospel, how is the Lord ever going to build his church? And yet the testimony of church history is that the Lord faithfully builds the church of the Lord Jesus through times of suffering and persecution. One of the practical advantages and spiritual advantages of suffering and persecution is it can awaken a sleeping church. It can jar out of its lethargy and fogginess a sleeping church when the difficulties of living as a Christian disciple become the daily, weekly, yearly life. When you look at this situation in verses 1 and 2 of his instructions, he wants them to pray for those kings and and in high position. So what would we pray for them? Well, I think first of all, you would want to recognize these kings in high positions, when Paul writes these words, these are not positions of authority dominated by believers. So one of the first things Paul would want us to pray for those who are in positions of high authority is that the Lord show mercy to them and they be saved. That the Lord show mercy to them and they be saved. Because when the Lord saves the lost and there is a particular person saved who has influence over the well-being and citizenry of someone under his authority or her authority, there is a benefit in a more common sense uh, when someone in authority exercises justice and righteousness and wisdom. And therefore, he says we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions. I think we would want to include in that that we pray they be saved. We would also want to pray that they would exercise their administrative duties with justice and wisdom. These are the kinds of things that ought to be obvious to us when we think, all right, what should we, what should we pray for? Uh, for leaders in the United States and leaders and rulers around the world. What should we ask the Lord to do in them? And I want you to know that what I'm saying to you this morning has snippets of examples in the early history of the church after the generation of the apostles. We have writings from people in the early centuries of the church that show what I mean. So for instance, here's an example of someone in the early second century named Clement of Rome. He says, grant to them, and he's talking about his, the, the ruling administrative leaders in Rome. He says, grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, that they may blamelessly administer the government which you've given them. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight, so that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority you've given them, they may experience your mercy. Another example from around 200 AD is a man named Tertullian. Tertullian says, without ceasing, for all our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, security to the empire, protection to the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, and the world at rest. Justin Martyr wrote to Marcus Aurelius, 
And he told Aurelius, I am praying that with your kingly power, you may be found to possess also sound judgment. Because people who are in positions of authority who are wicked and are unsound and who are unrighteous are a curse upon the people. And so he says here, what we need at these people worked on by the spirit of the Lord, that he would show them mercy, that he would endow them with wisdom. Because when leaders and authorities exercise wisdom, the people under their influence are blessed. So he says we need to pray, first of all, and urgently so. Pray for all people. And then he says in verse 2, for example, kings, all who are in high positions. The confidence that the Lord would work in rulers in this way is grounded in what the Old Testament teaches about God. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. There is a king of kings. And therefore, therefore, the apostles are to pray. And the churches are to pray. And throughout the history of the church, they pray for those in positions of authority. So that they, in their confidence of God's, in God's sovereignty, come before God with humility. The, before the one who is king of kings. We saw in chapter 1 verse 17 that the Lord is the king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. To Him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So to the King of the ages. So they worship the King of the ages. And then they pray for those who are the kings of the earth. They worship and give glory and allegiance to the King of the ages. And they pray for those who are earthly kings and in positions of high authority. But their worship is due God alone. And so they are to live within that difficult tension as citizens of heaven in their earthly citizenship. To live as faithful ambassadors before the Lord Jesus, who is the king of the ages. At the end of verse 2, he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Commentator Matthew Henry says it this way. Matthew Henry says here... Here see what we must desire for kings. That God will so turn their hearts and direct them and make use of them that under them we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. So he's connecting there the the prayer in verse 1 and the desirable result in verse 2. For the salvation and wisdom of the rulers. Because as those in authority know the mercy of God and the wisdom of sound leadership, That produces not hostility against the church, but enables the church to bear not just faithful witness, but peaceable witness. That is what we desire. He does not tell you to pray for persecution. He wants you to pray for those in authority that you might live a peaceable life for the Lord. At the end of verse 2, this life is characterized by godliness and dignity. In other words, you are to be concerned about how we as Christians conduct ourselves publicly. Before others, we, we cannot have a mindset that can be simply rooted in pride and selfishness. I don't care what anyone thinks. Now, there's there's two ditches, right? There's the, the ditch on the one side that we don't want to go to where we only care about what everybody thinks all the time about anything we do. And then there's the other side. Well, I don't care what anybody thinks. It actually matters how our faithful witness to Christ is understood. That doesn't mean the world approves and likes it. But they need to understand that we are convictional Christians marked by the power and fruit of the Spirit. 
In verse 2, these lives that we are to live are godly and dignified. What is a godly life? Well, the word godliness or a godly life is one that imitates the character of God. It is to seek to live out and walk in consistency with the gospel of the God who saves. This God saves sinners that we might, by the power of his Holy Spirit, walk in a way that honors him. Walk in a way that is obedient to him. And to walk before God in such a way is to have a godly life. And that means dignified. A godly and dignified life, this pair of terms go well together because a dignified life is a life respectable with the view of the gospel. This doesn't mean we win the approval and respect of the world. That can't be the foremost agenda for believers. But it is to say we don't want to bring unnecessary reproach upon the gospel by the way we conduct ourselves. In other words, we don't want to go out into the world and conduct ourselves on the internet and in the workplaces and in our schools like fools where someone could say, you ought to be embarrassed that you call yourself a Christian. Instead, we ought to not bring reproach upon the gospel. The offense of the cross already stands as a difficulty for the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew considers the cross foolishness and a stumbling block. Uh, Gentiles consider it foolishness and Jews the stumbling block. This means as we preach a gospel of a crucified and risen Savior, we ought by our lives and our words and our conduct consider how we might walk in a godly and dignified way. And we ought to pray that the governing authorities would protect such religious freedom where the gospel and the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ can live such peaceable lives. Can you imagine how desirable those conditions would especially be in the heart of Paul and those first century Christians? They're living in the Roman Empire. They're living under Emperor Nero when he writes these words. Oh, they would love for more favorable conditions for the fruit and the furthering of the gospel. The Lord is faithful, but it is more difficult in faithful Christian witness where the governing and influential authorities are targeting you. And the first century Christians knew what that felt like. Now in verse 3, he is looking at what he's just said about praying for these authorities, and he's going to evaluate it. Now it would be weird if he just gave some instructions in verses 1 and 2, and then said in verse 3, now this is bad. So that would be strange. He's not going to do that. We're not surprised that he gives some instructions and then says in verse 3, this is good. But, But it's helpful to recognize he is telling you and evaluating the moral quality of what he's just told us. So he's wanting us to pray in such a way and for all people, including rulers and those in high positions of authority, that our our Christian lives would be peaceably lived with dignity and godliness. And he says, by the way, in verse three, this is good. This is a good thing. So we want to say, well, what is what is the kind of pursuit in my prayerful uh, in my life of prayer and in my my hopes and and strategic relationships in in the lives of others locally and abroad where where we would seek to move the ball in one direction or another towards something what what would be good what Paul just said in verses one and two is a desirable thing it's good it's good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior so he's saying that these instructions in verses one and two Please the Lord. This pleases God. This pleases God. Now that, that notion alone ought to be the thing that is the banner over all of our lives. I want to do and give my life toward what is pleasing to God. I don't want to pursue what is displeasing to God. 
This sin brings harm to our souls and it dishonors the Lord who saved us. So he says in verses 1 and 2, pray in such a way and for these kinds of groups, and this is good. It is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Noticing that phrase at the very end is helpful for the interpretation I've offered in verses 1 and 2. Notice he calls God, God, our Savior. So if we're to imply in verses 1 and 2 that one of the things we want to pray for, for our kings and rulers and authority throughout the world, one of the things we want the positions of authority to be affected by is saving grace. That's pleasing to God because He's God our Savior. Praying for such a thing that the merciful work and wisdom of God would be upon the lives of those in influential places and authority. That's good, because you know the kind of God God is? A saving God. That's the kind of God He is. That's the end of verse 3, isn't it? He, He is pleased with such obedience in the lives of His people, because the kind of God that God is, is a God who is our Savior. Therefore, our praying is affected by how we, what we know of God. And because God is a Savior, then we pray with no group excluded that He would save. No group excluded that His mercy and wisdom would work upon and within. He's God our Savior. He's already told us this about God earlier in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior. And so that was in the opening line of the whole book, this whole letter. And now later in chapter 2, he's reminding us about who God is. And why is it pleasing in the sight of God our Savior? Well, it's because of the will of God for the tribes and nations and peoples of the earth. You see, in verse 4, this God, our Savior, is the one who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So verses 3 and 4 are intricately connected to the kinds of prayers we offer to the kings and those who are in authority because we we pray for God's saving grace upon them and wisdom upon them because God is a saving God and what He desires is that they come to know the truth. We therefore want to pray in sync with what God is calling all people to do and that is to repent and believe the gospel. So verse 4, this saving God Desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now how do we know God's call upon sinners is that they be saved? You you can get this beyond just the mission work of the New Testament apostles. The Old Testament tells us in Isaiah 45 verse 22. Listen to the word of God in Isaiah's prophecy to the people around. He says, the Lord does, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Can't get broader than that. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God is our Savior and He is the only saving God. He is the only God and therefore the only God that saves. And He, His will, His desire is at the ends of the earth that all kinds of people, just as they pray for all kinds of people, all kinds of people will also be saved. You know, we might wonder why the emphasis on all throughout these verses so far. First of all, he says in verse 1, pray for all kinds of people. And we're making all kinds of prayers along the way. For kings and all who are in high position in verse 2. In verse 4, he desires all people to be saved. It could be 
that Timothy is combating false teachers who are exclusivists and elitists in their thinking. They don't have a global perspective. Their heart is not for the nations. They don't want to see maybe rulers and those in high positions come to know Christ. They just have certain groups that maybe they favor. And maybe they teach and emphasize. And other groups that their prayers are not concerned about and intentionally exclude. It could be that Paul is offering these strong words in the opening of chapter 2 in order to push back against some mistaken notions that Timothy's going to have to combat directly. And part of the difficulty of these false teachers is not only what they're teaching, but how what they're teaching makes others think about our neighbor. And who ought to be the object of saving mercy and grace. He says, God's will, His declaration to sinners is that they from the ends of the earth turn to Him. He is the only God who saves. To come to the knowledge of the truth. That's another phrase for salvation. When it says to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that's a longer way of saying what you could have just put as to be saved. So to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth, that means they are learning the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. There's an objective truth. Not my truth, your truth. No, there's the truth of who Jesus is. And they are to receive and believe this truth. And Timothy's false teachers in Ephesus are spreading lies. Contrary to sound doctrine. Falsehood. So Timothy's commitment to sound doctrine will end up being a commitment to the truth and a proclamation of the truth of the gospel will mean that by God's grace, people come to know this truth. There's a cognitive element to this, an understanding about the truth of who Jesus is, an understanding about the truth of who Jesus is. The gospel is a message to be heard and believed, to be intentionally reflected on and received, to be trusted in. That in our hearts and minds and all that we are, we would have lives lived in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To submit our lives to Him and to glorify Him as a church. For God's will is at the ends of the earth, be saved. That they come to Him. The people of every nation and tribe and tongue. Read Revelation 5. Christ has purchased for Himself a people of the nations. And that means the prayers of Timothy and the church in Ephesus, and I think all the generations later, our church and all the churches of the Lord Jesus in a contemporary setting, our heart and our prayers must be informed by a global heart, a global sense of mission, because the peoples of the earth have been the object of His saving mercy, and they will come to Him. Through suffering and persecution, they will come to Him. Through hardship and difficulty, He will draw them. In circumstances of comfort and ease and politically facilitated times of peace, they will come to Him and He will build His church. The great news about the saving grace of the gospel is it is not dependent on political climate. It is not dependent on social this or social that. We have seen that in the book of Acts, in the testimony of the early church, and even presently in 2024 around the world, nothing will stop the power of the gospel. The Lord will build His church. And so therefore, we pray. We pray for all kinds of people. And for all kinds of people, we pray all kinds of prayers. We pray that the Lord would build His church, that He would give wisdom and salvation to the lost, and that those in leadership would be saved and come to know the truth, just as, just as we would long for the ends of the earth to be saved. 
And when this is our heart, and as we pray in this fashion, it is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Let's pray.